Promotional consideration paid for by the following. Hey, bro. It's Russo'sBrand.com. Get the real shoot for the most controversial personality in pro wrestling, Vince Russo. Stevie Richards Fitness. Hey, don't you think it's time for a band new you? Head over to StevieRichardsFitness.com and join the SRF resistance today. ProWrestlingTees.com. Get the coolest merchandise from your favorite independent pro wrestling talent worldwide. Head over to ProWrestlingTees.com and support indie wrestling today. The following program is presented by the HTM Podcast Network. Ridicule, fuel, fuel, but frustration. Treasury, with no documentation. Disease, live through Lloyd. Will you witness? There's no one testifies. Well, I'm the cure to your disease. Rage burns a brand new degree. You train your mouth with mistrust, now it's time to. Fuck you and all your insecurities. Be my taste to test my abilities. Every creature dug your hole too deep. Stretching the walls, no escape, it's too steep. Ready with the bows. Get out of my way. It is Tuesday, April 28th, 2020, and you are tuned in to Running with the Bulls, a podcast on the last dance, the final run of the Chicago Bulls, presented by the Hameen Media Group online, hackerhameen.podbean.com, and the HTM Podcast Network, still online, hittingthemarks.com. My name is Jargo, I'll be your host for the day, that's the big man on the wing, he's the man, the myth, the legend, he's my favorite huckleberry, he's the real RBV. Rick, welcome back to your show. Episode 2, Running with the Bulls. Over here, kamikaze sipping. It's me, three, Ricky Pippen. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, is a kamikaze like? Is that one of the most like overrated girly drinks of all time? I couldn't believe Dennis Rodman was drinking kamikazes in freaking Vegas. I don't know. You, you gotta, you gotta put yourself in the moment, in the time. That's you know, kamikazes are hot on the scene there. You know, in that '90s run, and, and I guess it kind of evolves. You know, you go into the, uh, then you got the snake bites, and then you get into your energy drink, the the blasters, the bombs, whatever it might be. So you gotta, you gotta put yourself in the moment. I think I'll, I'll go uh, a bit more MJ. You know, I have myself a little glass of Hennessy's just sitting here. That glass is getting awful empty. He's going to have to refill it here pretty quick. Of course, we're, we're here to talk today about episode three and episode four of The Last Dance. Rick, I, I've kind of broke this down. Episode three is the Dennis Rodman episode. Episode four is the Phil Jackson episode, even though really the entire series is all about Michael Jordan. And episode three was one of the episodes I was most looking forward to, not only because we get to talk about the 1991 Lakers, which were a fantastic team. But also, we get to talk about the bad boy Pistons. Detroit basketball! Uh, before we jump into this, kind of your, your thoughts on the old school bad boy Pistons. Because growing up, especially in this area, I hated the Pistons. I absolutely hated them. It was like just ingrained into your blood that you had to hate the Detroit Pistons. Now, looking back on them... They're probably one of the top four or five teams of all time. Yeah, like even back then, yeah, as we're talking about, you put yourself in that in that time. And we can always it's always different how we sit back and reflect in, in the memories that we have. But even then, you know, I was coming from the mindset, hey, I I mean I was a little hipster then as well, you know, the Raiders were the kings ruling the roost in the NFL. So if you were taken to the silver and the black, you loved that style that the bad boys in Detroit were bringing to the hardwood. I mean, they, they lived, you know, outside of the rules, outside of the, the tradition and respect of the Celtics or the showtime, the flash, and the flair of the L.A. Lakers. This was something completely different inside of professional basketball. It is – and what I really – what I really loved here is when you look at that wider scope of what they're illustrating, the story, the narrative inside of episode three – it's more about the, the change and the competition to grab those number one spots, the passing of the torch and who is going to be there to claim the throne. And even so, I mean, you've got obviously the the two that were established inside of Showtime, the Lakers. You had the uh, top to bottom Hall of Fame roster of the Celtics. You had the Pistons making their claim with their just outlandish style. The Bulls, they're knocking on the door, but as well. 
you know, the Cavaliers who were a stacked team in their own right. And in many, as we learn in the documentary, they were really the ones that people had favored to be that breakout team, that they embodied a little bit more of those other styles that had brought teams to so much success inside of the Celtics and Lakers. Yeah, I I think one of the things that really goes understated about the Bad Boy Pistons throughout this documentary was the reason that the Bad Boy Pistons were the Bad Boy Pistons. The Bad Boy Pistons had to be the Bad Boy Pistons if they wanted to put up with Boston. As much as people want to sing the praises of those mid-80s Boston teams, they were basically the Bad Boy Pistons before the Bad Boy Pistons were a thing. And I think it was you know more about culture as well. And you look maybe at the cities. Well, Detroit inside of itself, or not, you know, Boston inside of itself, you know, they've always had a tougher mentality, but we look at them more as like that blue collar, the factory worker sort of, you know, they've got the lunch pails and they're hitting the clock and they're tough, tough as nails through and through. And that generates a little bit more of respect. When you go over to the Motor City, you know, it's a little bit more gangster. It's the other side of the tracks. It it brings in into mind even to today as it did back then, you know, the African American culture. And that's what represented, you know, the Pistons represented. So even though there are parallels and they're very similar, completely different perspectives on these teams. Absolutely. Here, here was the starting lineup for your bad boy Detroit Pistons. Bill Lambeer, John Sally, Rick Mahorn, Isaiah Thomas, and a young man by the name of Dennis Rodman, which is really kind of the, the branch between the two parts of this series as they're going through the early days of the bulls and and the bulls struggling to get to that pinnacle in the NBA. Rodman was a bad boy piston leading up to the last dance by the, to that time Rodman had completely went off of his rocker and was a Chicago bull. Um, We're going to talk a lot about Isaiah Thomas throughout this episode. Obviously we're going to talk a lot about Rodman throughout this episode. Were you a little surprised that we got so little of John Sally, no Rick Mahorn, no Bill Lambeer? Like, do you just suppose those two guys were like, fuck you, I ain't talking about the Bulls? Now, I, as much as we were hungry for that thing, and you said they could have so many spinoffs into this series. I mean, just break down that rivalry between the Pistons and the Bulls. I mean, I think, you know, that could go off into it. If it's not its own series, it at least should be its own 30 for 30. And, and truly just go inside of that dynamic. I think in the bigger picture, the narrative for The Last Dance, it truly was about, you know, mainly that Rodman transition to let us know early on the roots, the fundamentals that were instilled into him, that attitude that he got there in, in Detroit and in the evolution of what, because what we had in Detroit with Rodman was completely different and a completely different dynamic and individual persona than what would end up in Chicago. I thought one of the most interesting things throughout this entire series so far was Dennis Rodman talking about the physics of rebounding. I even like sent you a message. I said, I don't know what Rodman majored in when he was in college, but it wouldn't surprise me if it was physics. I mean, he's getting into the amount of ball spin coming off of the ball, where the ball's going to hit on the rim. If it hits here, I have to move over here. If Jordan's shooting from the wing, then I need to move over here. He had all the physics just figured out Jordan even calls Rodman one of the smartest people he ever played with. I think it's it's really just his unique perspective on the world and how he's taken that different look from other individuals. What completely blew me away is it's something I really hope that maybe young players today that, that they took to heart is you got Rodman in there talking about, yeah, you know, when most people they're out, they want the ball and they're practicing their shot. He's getting his buddies to go up there and chuck the ball against it so he can look and see, okay, where is this thing coming from? If a shot's coming from here at this trajectory, where do I need to be positioning myself to grab a rebound here? I mean, that is crazy. When have you heard anything like, you know, something like that? Never. I've never heard anything like that, especially when he starts getting into, and they just briefly touch on it, the amount of spin that Larry Bird would have on the ball, the amount of spin that Magic Johnson would have on the ball versus Michael's shot versus Scotty's shot. He was so educated not only in his own players to go get offensive rebounds, he would sit there and he would study the other team and just see how the ball was even coming out of their hand just to predict where the ball was going to go. It's absolutely crazy. I'm going to go back and watch a bunch of these games just to watch Rodman and where he positions himself on the floor. It's just it's it's fascinating science to me. Yeah, an absolute field general in that, right? It really reminded me of, you know, things I've heard interviews and philosophies from one like a Greg Maddox, 
you know, who would spend so much time watching and how, uh, you know, one of the batters position themselves and knowing, you know, where he's going to place this thing, how to position his fielders and things like that. And just just overwhelming science that is involved inside of professional sports that people just you just take for granted. Yeah, you don't even think about it. It's just not even a thought that crosses your mind. The other thing I want a 10 part documentary series on is Jordan rules. I mean, this was absolutely insane. And I remembered this as soon as they started talking about it. Here's the Jordan rules, ladies and gentlemen. On the wings, we're going to push him to the elbow and we're not going to let him drive the baseline. Number two, when he's on top, we're going to influence him to his left as if Michael was so much worse going to his left than he was to his uh, right. Actually, no, that was a, that if you go look at statistics on this thing, he was far dominant on his right. That's so crazy. you had a better of jumping. And that's what if you think about, you know, with the goat, but. You're statistically, you had a better chance of disrupting his flow and game and all that by forcing him to that left. When he got the ball on the low post, we were going to trap him down from the top. That all comes from Brendan Malone. And one of the highlights of the whole freaking thing is the director asked, well, what happens if he does make it baseline? That's when Lambeer and Mahorn would go and knock him to the ground. And Rodman even says, every time he goes to the fucking basket, put him on the ground. We tried to physically hurt Michael. Rick, I, I, I feel like what they were really trying to do here is provide a little bit of context. Because when we look at players like James Harden, like Russell Westbrook, hell, even LeBron James, and people say they wouldn't last for five minutes in the 1989 NBA, this is exactly what they're talking about. The league was completely different then. It was so much more physical. I mean, Harden's out there throwing himself on the floor. He wouldn't have to throw himself on the floor. Mahorn and Liam Beer would make damn sure that they got that covered for him. Yeah, it's, you know, going to social media and tracking the reactions uh, across the board from uh, a variety of individuals and how, you know, what they're taking, if it's if it's going down memory lane like we are, or if it's the first time seeing something like this, it was a, it was a young, a younger fan. Uh, that I had seen, I believe, you know, it was probably in his mid twenties and he's like, wow. He's like, uh, the bulls would, but would destroy the warriors today. And I just simply replied. I said, well, what do you think the bad boys would do? Right. And he said, and he just sent back fucking bury the warriors. Yeah. But uh, on the same hand, if you take those Pistons teams and you put them in 2020 with the way that the game is played today, they wouldn't stand a snowball's chance in fucking hell. I mean, my God, Bill Lambeer would be out of the game within 45 seconds. Well, I, I, you know, top to bottom, they might not even be in the league. Yeah, I, it, it was just apples and oranges as far as the comparison goes. <laughs> they might actually be physically in prison. <laughs> That's true. That's true. James Harden would certainly be dead. Uh, one of the things that also stood out to me in this episode that's completely different now. Now we see all these NBA players they are hanging out and they're playing video games together and they're going off and they're forming super teams and everybody's all buddy, buddy. And you know, don't at me on Twitter. Michael Jordan is still pissed off at the Detroit Pistons. Horace Grant called them straight up bitches all going back to the 1991 walk-off Rick. When did this change? It used to be about players and about teams and the rivalries. like th There were people that didn't think there was any chance in hell that Dennis Rodman would actually be brought to Chicago strictly because he was a member of those Pistons teams. Now, everybody's all buddy-buddy and they all want to hang out. It's it's not about that team rivalry anymore. Michael Jordan still hates Detroit. Well, it, it, uh, you still kind of hate you have memories of those times but there is you know a reason that they welcome a rodman in with open arms and there were other players that crossed over uh who was when we're talking about the bulls and the shot against the cavaliers and they put craig elo on them and who was who was it that was assigned to him harper he would later come over to become a, a very valuable part of the bulls so inside of those moments when you take that step back you're looking at okay what does this do for our team these guys are going to help us win win championships Forgive and forget. But you still remember those instances and you remember those franchises. But I guess to, to the bigger point that you're talking about here is there used to be that that more of that impersonal investment that you really now only see amongst fans, yeah. you know, especially as I'm sitting here in Cincinnati, you know, in our division, if, it, if I'm up in Cleveland or here in Cincinnati, I mean, it, it's bloodthirst fan for fan against the Steelers. 
Uh, you know, in, in Cleveland, it's the same way for the Steelers and damned if they're ever going to show any bit of respect to Baltimore, who took their damn franchise and went and got a Super Bowl with that team. But I think back then, because of somebody, when we talked about last week, Jordan working on these deals to deals year to year, you know, why didn't he leave? I think then the players were more invested. Jordan had, you know what? I don't care what. This is my team, my city. I'm going to carry them the championships. Now it's more about that personal brand where you see in with the evolution of free agency, people moving around and uh, about the hustle and bustle of that. So you don't get settled in. You're not as it's the competition's not as there. It pisses me off. It drives me absolutely freaking insane. As a Lakers fan, the last damn thing I want to see is LeBron James and Jason Tatum meeting at half court and throwing hands and, oh, I love you, bro. I love you, bro. And everybody's all PG. Fuck Boston. Fuck them right up their fucking ass. I fucking hate the Celtics. I'll always hate the Celtics. And you see it across the board, too. You know, one of the ones that really jumps out to me, and I'm, overall I'm going to blame this thing on free agency and, you know, everybody's got the same agents now. So now they're all working together to, to set that next standard for contracts. But in, in football, when you saw somebody like Tom Brady and Peyton Manning right. chumming like, it up. They shouldn't be friends. They should fucking loathe each other with all of like their I, being. Like, I couldn't imagine and, and how frustrating it should have been for like a Peyton Manning. Who, you know, is he's got all the personality in the world. He was in college, you know, Heisman, you know, in the running and, and all the accolades and all that. And here comes Tom, who, I mean, shit, I mean, he's got good looking. He's a cocky guy. The hell with, you know, the hell with him. If you're and he, Pete Manning should hate it, that son of a bitch. I mean, this would have been like the equivalent of Bernie Kozar, like chumming up with John Elway back in the day. You keep taking everything away from me, you son of a bitch in the AFC. <laughs> but, well, it's like, one of the teams that was getting thrown around when we found out that Brady was absolutely leaving New England was the Indianapolis Colts. Makes me sick in my stomach to even think about Tom Brady as a member of the Indianapolis Colts. And the Indianapolis Colts shouldn't want Tom Brady. They should fucking hate him. I, I keep hearing uh, Michael Wilbon throughout the other day that, you know, with everything going on in Green Bay, that he could see Aaron Rodgers in a Bears jersey. Get the fuck out of here. That's the last goddamn thing anybody wants to see. How it was even so weird, and it, and it wasn't like uh, he abruptly went there. I mean, he had to stop at the Jets and all that. But it was so weird seeing Brett Favre in a Vikings jersey. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, that wasn't even that long ago. And the whole reason that he went to the Jets was because it was in the deal when the Packers agreed to let him go. You can't go to Minnesota for at least a year. He wanted to go there before he even went to New York. Just a joke. And of course, the, the Jordan hating the Pistons all goes back to the 1991 walk-off when the Bulls finally beat the Pistons and the Pistons walk off the floor with like seven seconds left in the game, didn't shake hands with the Bulls, and the Bulls are still pissed off about it. Like Horace Grant said, they were straight up bitches. And of course, the Pistons come back and they say, well, now that's just the way the league was back then. I mean, go back and, and look at the Boston Celtics, the 88 Celtics. They did the same thing to us. No, they didn't. That is a complete line of bullshit. And here's why. In 1988, fans still storm the court. That was the reason that the 1988 Celtics were escorted off the floor by security for their own safety so the Detroit fans, because Boston was on the road, didn't storm the court and actually like go after Larry Bird and Kevin McHale and Robert Parrish. The Pistons were in Detroit. The Chicago fans weren't going to storm the floor in Detroit. The Pistons were straight-up bitches. No. No. This is the attitude. This is the culture inside of Detroit. This is what made them the bad boys. They believe in their hearts, in their minds, that this was just a hiccup. This is one of the greatest upsets in all of basketball history because they still dominate the East. They still are the true world champions, and it still runs through them. They're not ready to just you know, shake hands, play nice, pass the torch, hand over the crown. They're going back to regroup, and they're going to come back to throw down. That's what they've got here. I think on the other side of this, now we're getting this out of Jordan because this still it's, it, this is bigger than the issue with the Pistons. This is a fire that still burns with inside of him. He takes every little thing, every little knock. He uses that as fuel. 
to fire him towards greatness. Yeah, I mean, even at the Hall of Fame, he went off on his high school coach. Yes. Well, he he holds all of those. You got to believe in every walk of life, Jordan holds a lot of damn grunges. Because that's what drives him. We talked last week about, you know, if management and ownership would tell him one thing when he got held to the seven minutes, that's fine. He's going to be the most incredible seven minutes you've ever seen from any anyone out there on that floor. I'll go sit down and do what you want. That's, but you can't. Those seven minutes are mine. We play by my rules. This, that's Jordan taking a situation and kind of inflating a little bit to drive his agenda there. It, it's a little bit of a, a sore winner of sorts. It really is. I, I thought it was very telling when uh, they, they go to show him the footage of Isaiah talking about it and kind of explaining what happened. And Jordan says before he even looks at the phone, you can show me anything you want. There's no way you convince me he wasn't an asshole. And I think it is. And, and I'm not, when I say it's a sore winner, I'm saying that in a positive way. I think more people need that drive, that nothing is going to stop you. And, and that's what he, that's what he's doing. And even in, you know, this is, this is the story here is that struggle, what it takes to get to that championship level. We hear so often like, oh, they only made the playoffs or they only won how many championships in his career? That talks to how difficult it is to grab a ring, to seize the championship in whatever you're doing. And this story here in these two episodes is about, you know, trying to conquer that mountain to get to that pinnacle and, and how difficult that was for the Bulls. I really appreciated here one moment where, uh, was it a game, game five, a deciding game there where Jordan, or maybe it, it was a big game there, and Jordan misses a free throw that ultimately cost them the game. We don't remember those now. Right. Because now we're living on the highlights, the championships, all the highs. But we'll sure as hell in this day and age, we take James LeBron to task every time something oh, yeah. like that happens. Yeah, because it, because it's so fresh. Yes. LeBrick, motherfucker cannot shoot free throws to save his goddamn life. It drives and, me and, you nuts. Know, well, and then now, you know, when we remember Shaq, we're not talking about all the bricks. I mean, he built stadiums himself with the bricks. Well, you, you heard Shaq the, the hack boat, right? The Shack rules, you know, the Hackett Shack. You heard Shaq bought a boat, right? He yeah, named he his boat fun. free throw because he knows he'll never sink it. That's the honest to God fucking truth. That's not even a goddamn joke. That's what makes it fucking say, hilarious. Like, we got dad jokes today. <laughs> that is fucking hilarious. Uh, the other thing that they didn't talk about at all is why Isaiah Thomas hates Michael Jordan. Because it has nothing to do with 1991. It has everything to do with the dream team. Because Michael Jordan told the Dream Team, if Isaiah Thomas is on this team, I'm not fucking playing. And so Isaiah Thomas got left off of the Dream Team. It, Rick, this has been debated to death. Isaiah Thomas clearly belonged on the Dream Team. Uh, absolutely. When you talk about the best of that time, and, and he was one of the stands out, standouts in the league, obviously the, the focal point, foundation, you will, of that great run, that, you know, the brief run there by the Pistons, I do have to hand it to Isaiah here. I mean, you could just tell the sarcasm oh. during his interview. And, and I even love the body language, you know. I mean, he's got that nice setting, and he's so relaxed. In his and his Pistons blue suit. Well, And he's completely no-selling this thing. You know, and it, it's like, oh, that that's just how it was, man. And, but you could tell by that smirk on his face that he he's like, all right, what should I say in 2020? I'm going to completely no-sell this shit. And that's what you got from him. He still had that bad boy demeanor about him, and he he wasn't going to give in even all these years later. Decades later, he's still not ready to put them over. And you didn't hear anywhere in there, even from like Sally and them that made the transition from Detroit to Chicago. You never heard them putting over the Bulls at any time. Right? No, never. Not once. The only one that does is Dennis Rodman. Yeah. And it's because he's so involved. Was Sally even in this thing? Yeah, I want Chicago. I got my rings, but I'm piston for life. He's wearing his piston here. Yeah. I mean, he's got the logo, and Isaiah's got the blue on. Yeah, those guys were something. Uh, the other thing I really took away from episode three is Dennis Rodman's a pretty boring Speaking guy. Of, there we go. <laughs> got Phil on in the background. Yeah, if, if you're watching us on, on YouTube, you can actually see Phil talking in the background there. Um, Dennis Rodman's a pretty boring guy. Um, I, I, I know that people are infatuated with Dennis Rodman. Rick, did you learn anything about Dennis Rodman that you did not already know during episode three? Like the Rodman story has been told to death 
so much and he's so lambastic. We don't really know anything about Dennis Rodman. He's just sitting there telling us the stories that we've heard for 25 years. Well, I think, you know, it, the way this was presented, I really liked the early going ons in episode three because I didn't really know so much about his upbringing. You know, I, I knew he came from a project, a troubled background, but, you know, to the extent of damn near homeless, you know, at times living backyard to backyard. And, you know, and he spoke about at those times, you, you don't realize, you know, he could have turned to drugs, but luckily he found basketball. And, and I think that really speaks to, you know, when he gets, he goes through college, he gets to Detroit, he is kind of like this, this innocent lost kid. He doesn't know the ways of the world. And I think that really explains a lot, you know, when he ends up in the relationship with Madonna and, you know, what she means to society, the, the figure that she is. And we know how outlandish the lifestyle and her viewpoints and what she's living there. It, it really that's when you probably see Rodman start to live as an adolescent, that lifestyle, like like a teenager finding themselves. He just happens to be now in his early 20s with, I don't know, you know millions of dollars. And all the fame in the world, he's dating a freaking icon. Uh, of course, that's going to be personified to the highest extent, a hundred times over. And the Madonna thing cannot go understated. And I'm sure people are going to hear this in 2020, and they're just going to be like, "Well, everybody worships Madonna. They didn't in 1991. In 1991, like a prayer had just come out." And once they went into that whole like a prayer and then the religious wackos came after her and that's when Madonna went off the deep end. It just so happens to be about the same time her and Dennis Rodman started dating and she's the one that really brought out the quote individuality in Dennis. I, I don't think that her impact on Dennis Rodman can go understated enough. Yeah, I guess, you know, for a lot of people today that maybe obviously weren't born there you know you're looking today that's almost a norm you know what we have seen like when when britney's coming of age or miley cyrus or anything with cardi b and all that that was madonna then and she was the only one in town doing that she went from kind of you know, that cindy lopper the the debbie gibson the tiffany the paula abdul like that little bubble gum pop you know fun musician to just going over the like oh my god you're you're openly outwardly talking about sexuality and you're defying your your strong catholic background and i mean all they, the, they almost put pepsi out of business because pepsi used like a prayer inside of one of their ad campaigns and then the music video comes out and even pepsi felt the backlash on that absolutely and you have her influence now here with a young dennis rodman who you know as i'm saying didn't really experience life like that and this is his coming of age. This is him trying to find himself. Now you got this influence. I'm not saying it's negative, but it had uh, an incredible effect on him of what we would see the Dennis Rodman come to be. Um, then we have the Detroit gun incident. And this was something it was very briefly talked about in the documentary. It was only a couple of minutes. I, that was one of the things I had completely forgotten. As soon as they started talking about it, I remembered it. But they, they kind of skim over that entire thing. Rodman shows up at the palace. He's got a rifle next to him in the freaking car. Nobody knows what in the hell the explanation is. It, it was just one of those things. Hell, it even got buried in the media at the time. Like, it was big news for about two days. And then it was just gone. Because Rodman was gone from Detroit shortly thereafter. Well, I think, you know, back then it's a case of you can you can manipulate you know, you handle your own media in a sorts. And I think for the case of the documentary with today, you know, the stance and the emotions that come along with any kind of anything kind of gun related, uh, they didn't want to highlight that here. Yeah. No, and I think that's, that's a good point. That's a good point. Um, but that does result in him leaving Detroit. The, the whole gun incident is the whole reason that he was shipped out of Detroit. He goes to San Antonio and they just kind of breeze over that because they, San Antonio is basically just a stopgap between Detroit and Chicago. But Rodman makes a comment that really, really stood out to me. He says, nobody can say anything bad about me as a teammate. I'm pretty sure there's a lot of players on that Spurs team that would have an awful lot of bad things to say about Dennis Rodman as a teammate. Uh Rodman went completely off the rails while he was in San Antonio to the point where he's sitting, not even on the bench. He's sitting at the scorer's table with his shoes off, just watching the freaking game on the floor. 
Yeah, you know, just all around, a, really not just the right structure for him. And we're talking about that coming of age. And this is where he truly is. He's acting like that pouting kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's not really getting his way. San Antonio at that time, you know, now it's crazy for us to think that wasn't like a, a prime market. You know, now, you know, with the, the run that they had, you know, with. But it's still not. I mean, those Spurs teams, as good as they were, they still don't get the credit that they actually deserve. Right. But even then, you know, it's not under that microscope where you would have in the East with Detroit who's competing or, you know, later on in Chicago. You know, then it's kind of a forgotten destination. And you've got Rodman there who, hell, you know, he just came from that championship run. He was with uh, the iconic Madonna. And now he's becoming kind of this forgotten figure. So what do you do? It's the same thing. You know, when when. When Quinn's acting up or Noah's acting, they, they scream out. They want that attention, so they start acting out. And that's kind of what you got from Rodman and San Antonio. And they didn't have the structure in place at that time. Even then, they've got in there, hey, you're a professional. Just come do your job. We're not here to kind of hold your hand and babysit you through this. You don't have that. In, well, it is we're going to get to that connection you had with the Zen master and how the parallels between the attitudes between him and Rodman. But you, you did have a true father figure in Detroit with Daly. You don't have that in San Antonio. There, it's a it's a job. Come play basketball. We're not here to hold your hand and kitty around with you. And he was not adapting to that. So then we jump forward through time, as we often do inside of this documentary, and we come to the 97-98 season. And we, we kind of pick up where we left off inside of episode two. Scotty is out. He's refusing to play. He's rehabbing an injury. And Rodman becomes the clear number two to Michael Jordan. And they tell this incredible story of Rodman coming to Jordan's hotel room and asking for a cigar. And that was basically, okay, Michael, I done fucked up. That was really the conversation that was going on without any conversation going on. And Jordan just lit a fuse underneath of Rodman's ass. And then we start seeing the Dennis Rodman that we all remember. The Rodman diving into the crowd, going after every loose ball, every rebound. And then things take a very, very dark turn because Scottie Pippen comes back. Scottie Pippen comes back. They talk about that in the documentary, and it might as well have been Marshawn Lynch sitting there on the hotel bed talking to us. He basically just says, I'm just here so I don't get fined. Scottie just lays it out that the whole reason he returned to the Chicago Bulls was because he knew they weren't going to trade him. And if he didn't come back, he knew the team was just going to start finding him. We found out in episode two why Scottie took so much less money than what he was actually worth. It was to support the family, the 12 kids, mom and dad, two stroke victims. You got a couple of people in a wheelchair. Scottie wasn't giving up any money. So he just decided to return to the floor. But it, it very much felt like that Marshawn Lynch Super Bowl kind of moment. And again, you know, stepping back in time, put yourself inside of that situation. Obviously, Pippen has still got hurt feelings. Uh, we talked last week about the extent that the Bulls were going to. I mean, they were almost double the salary cap at the time. And although his contract at the time was beyond fair and Scotty was still making very good money, uh, he felt that he deserved a little more slice of that pie. Maybe, you know, just outside of financials to support that group around him. But ultimately, that respect that his contributions were you know, just there with Michaels. And I think, you know, in episode four, we learned more about that in, in seeing exactly a little bit. I, it still blows my mind how this thing exactly works, but you get a, a small sample of the triangle offense and how important Scotty would come to the success of this, this franchise, this dynasty inside of that dynamic. Uh, but yeah, but to speak to, you know, with Rodman, he is probably feeling – absolutely rejuvenated but probably better than he ever has in his life especially professionally he has left he has left that that bad environment just not a bad environment for him in san antonio and now finds himself in chicago which i mean that was a great debate too i mean you're bringing in who not just outside of hey i mean he was with the bad boys you had that from the fan base you had that from some other you know scouts and people with a little bit of pool in there but just Whoa, whoa, whoa. You're bringing just that mind, that mentality inside. I mean, that easily could have imploded any franchise, but they believed, hey, we've got the working pieces. We've got a coach that can do this. We've got stars that can do this. And immediately, Michael Jordan demands the respect and gets the best out of Rodman here. And he's riding high. He's the number two. It's these two, the gunslingers, going out there and taking care of business. And then you've kind of, when Rodman joins this crew, 
He doesn't really have that relationship with Pippen. He doesn't understand the mindset that, that Scotty has had for all these years during these other championships. It's just uh, for Rodman, you got to have a, a sense that he believed it was all right. That was just a bad attitude coming in here. And he's going to take my spot right in shotgun. Did you feel a little bit of animosity towards Scotty Pippen out of Dennis Rodman? Like Absolutely. he goes from being number two to being the third wheel. And it seems like even now, like he's still kind of bitter about that. Like he earned that spot as the number two on that team in his mind. And that's competitiveness. Uh, and I, you see this today. Uh, you know, how many people are jumping ship going to different teams? I well, mean, ultimately. Kevin Durant. I, perfect Durant, example. Kyrie. Yeah. Uh, across the board, you really see that where people say, okay, you know, they feel slighted. And it, you're going to have that. This is such a highly competitive profession. Egos are easily bruised. Episode three kind of ends up with Dennis deciding that he needs a vacation. We'll talk about Rodman in Vegas a little bit more uh, when we get into episode four. But before we go to episode four, we got to talk about a couple of other guys. We got to talk about Doug Collins because Doug Collins doesn't get nearly enough credit for the early days of Jordan and, and those bad boy Pistons feuds. I mean, Phil gets all the praise. But Doug Collins even lays out that, you know, while he was the head coach, Michael was the MVP of the league. He was defensive player of the year. He won the scoring title. He led the league in assists. All this, all these accolades. But even Doug Collins knows, yeah, Phil Jackson's my assistant coach, and he probably should be coaching this team. Like, he just flat out says it. Do you remember Doug Collins much there in the city of Chicago? Yeah, you know, looking back and the memories just completely gone from existence. And I, you know, he went in there and it was young, fresh life brought to that team. And he was the perfect fit for that positioning to get them up there to face those giants. But but we would come to see, you know, he needed more of that outside the box philosophies and thinking if this team was going to get over that hump and succeed here. He, he was tremendous for the ego of a Michael Jordan. Absolutely. Uh, and, and that kind of brings us to your Cleveland Cavaliers, um, which I agree. At that time, especially the 88, 89, those Cavaliers teams, while they had the ugliest uniforms in the entire league, were freaking stacked. And as, as much as people remember, you know, the Jumpman logo from the dunk contest, the shot. When Michael beat Cleveland in Cleveland, and then he, you, I'm sending all you motherfuckers home as he's standing there air punching the air. That to me is the most iconic Michael Jordan moment. Well, you go back, we can reference in the documentary, you have the three reporters sitting there and one had written them off in three, four and five. And he goes over and says, we already took care of you, took care of you, you're next. And this again, this is almost that sore winner attitude inside of Jordan, he's using all of this for fuel here. Now, something occurred to me during, and we got a, it was a very brief mention of the Cavaliers mm -hmm. in these episodes here. And because, you know, looking back, maybe because I'm from Ohio, but to me, I mean, that rivalry, you know, through, you know, those playoffs, I mean, the Cavs were that team that were always looking to get over, looking that the Bulls were there. And they owned major. Them. Cleveland was 6-0 and against Chicago in, that in this season. But it, it seems that like for years, it would be like this. And then I'm sitting there watching this thing, and it occurred to me. Well, you know, one of the finest sports films ever and one of the greatest baseball films, Major League. Great movie. It is centered around – and I want to include the first two in this thing because I think it's where it comes full circle. It's really centered around the, the, the story of the coming of age, those ragtag underdogs with so much talent, Cleveland Indians. And really in those first two, the whole thing, the payoff is – they. They're going to have their moment. They're heading to a World Series. Who did they overcome? That last, it was against a very it was cocky. White Sox, wasn't it? A very cocky, yes, White Sox team. So in this weird way, you know, Cleveland had all these years wanted to overcome that giant who was Chicago, and they never could get that done. And it, it's city versus city here. Yeah. They could never get that thing done, so they kind of recreate this thing inside of that baseball narrative. Hopefully I might be stretching there, but it was just kind of, you know, the 
And I, I, I think the thing that best sums up Doug Collins when he was the head coach of the Chicago Bulls was the actual play call on that shot. As he lays it out in the postgame press conference, what was the play that you called? It was called give the ball to Michael and get the fuck out of his way. He says that straight up in the press conference. That was literally like the entire time that Michael Jordan played underneath of Doug Collins. That was the offense. And that was all about to change when Phil Jackson would come to town. We went from the get the fuck out to the triangle. Yep. But before we talk about the Zen and the triangle, we have to throw it over to this words from our friends over at the Brosters. Bro, if you're a real coffee lover, then you've got to try Brosters Limited Edition Vince Russo Bro Coffee. Available right now at www.thebroasters.com. This limited edition coffee is fresh roasted weekly and shipped directly to your door. You will love the Nicaraguan blend with roasted chocolatey notes when you smell it. Get your Vince Russo Bro Coffee today at thebroasters.com and follow them at Coffee Brosters today on Twitter. Enjoy the best coffee today, bro. From Brosters, Vince Russo Brand, and Hameen Media Group. All right, Huckleberry, let's talk about it. The Zen Master, the Triangle. Let's talk about Rodman and Vegas. My God, number one, let's start here. How fucking good did Carmen Electra look in 2020? Holy shit. Uh, simply incredible. I mean, she looks like she hasn't aged a single day. But let's let's talk about Carmen Electra. Let's refer to her as Cincinnati's own oh, Carmen Electra, the, the finest the finest piece of candy, the the, the golden goddess from the five one three. Might be your best yes. export. Cincinnati's greatest export, Carmen Electra, just a, about a. Just a, hold on here. A couple days ago, I believe. Yeah, April 20th. 420. She can get any better than that. I know that's got to up the ante in your book there. National Just holiday. turned 48 years old. Holy Still shit. rocking and rolling. Uh, went to the Cincinnati Creative School of Performing Arts. Graduated from Princeton. So, yes, a little uh, hometown. Could you imagine Carmen Electra walking around on campus at Princeton and all the fucking nerds looking at her? My God. Princeton High School. Oh, oh. Well, still, could you imagine Carmen Electra walking around? I was was sitting here thinking. I was like, wow, she's a lot smarter than I thought she was. No, no, no. Uh, Princeton High School. But we would learn that Carmen Electra was a chicken shit. Uh, as, as Dennis Rodman is on his 48, 72, 96, however long he's in Vegas bender, um, he's hanging out with Carmen Electra, who is completely clueless and has no idea that the NBA season evidently is still going on. I mean, and why would she? I mean, she's a big TV star at this point. You know, Baywatch was kind of a thing. And all of a sudden there's a knock at the door and it's Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan coming to Vegas to come get Dennis Rodman's ass and bring him back to practice. And Carmen Electra's hiding because she doesn't want to be around Michael Jordan. Could you imagine being a fly on the wall for that conversation? Michael Jordan flying from Chicago to Vegas to go get Dennis Rodman and bring him back to go win another chip. My God, man. But they don't really talk too much about Vegas. It's maybe like five, 10 minutes worth of documentary time. But you know, it's probably a little too much. You know what? Sta- what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. How did they but, get I mean, that video footage of Rodman in Vegas? That's my question. Like, did Rodman have a camera crew walking around with him the whole time he was in Vegas? Well, what I mean, they have ultimate access to the team during this time. If you, they tell you Rodman's going to Vegas, you catch wind of this thing, you're sending a camera down there. Uh, in addition to this, I, I don't know if this is the exact timing, but you did have Electra and Rodman. They got married in Vegas. And to add a little bit more perspective to this thing, this is a very weird time in each of their lives. You know, you obviously hear through the documentary, we find out that Rodman, he is burnt out. You know, he's kind of at the end of the rope there with everything with Scotty. He needs to recharge those batteries. Phil understands that. If we're going to have him at his best, he needs to have time to hit reset. On the other side of this, you got Carmen, who's absolutely enthralled with you know everything that Rodman represents, the bad boy lifestyle, rock and roll attitude. She's at a pretty weird spot in her own life. Uh, within a matter of months before this, she had lost her mother and older sister. 
Uh, so two just devastating deaths that really affected her. And this is kind of her way of, okay, you know, she's lashing out at the world right now. And she just embraces that anything goes balls to the wall attitude that Rodman's given her. And you're only magnifying that when you go to Sin City. Crazy. Just a crazy, crazy story. Um, and then it also gets into episode four, basically the Phil Jackson story. Uh, they, they take us. And I, I thought it was a great use of a segue. The way that they went from Rodman to Phil and explaining, you know, the first time that Phil met Rodman, them bonding over, you know, the Native American artifacts and whatnot. I thought it was a masterful way inside of the presentation to segue from Dennis Rodman to Phil Jackson. I, I just I, that was incredible to me, the way that they tied those two stories and basically 30 years all together, just in, in one like segue that was maybe 15, 20 seconds long. Well, I think, you know, what's so what's so unique about this is so cool is how they put this thing together is you immediately understand that back when this was just the, uh, the good old boys, white boys league that Phil represented, he was that times Rodman. Yeah, he was the uh, he was the ultimate hippie. Yeah. You know, he, he you come out, you got the clean cut, all the other guys. And obviously, I mean, you got the squared uniforms, but you got Phil out there with the big old beard and you hear the stories of off the court. You know, he's the guy that's it's packing the bowl and he goes and begins his coaching career over. Where was he at? Puerto Rico. Yeah. in Puerto Rico. I do. I heard a story last night and I, I've got to try to source this thing out, but I heard a story last night that before Chicago Bulls home games, they would curse the other team's bench. Basically what they would, they would sacrifice a chicken, drain its blood, and then pour its blood over the opposing team's bench. I've got to source this story, but I heard this last night and I, I was just oh, like, you've that got they to would go where with this? Me. That they would do this in Chicago? Yes. Because they, they referenced this thing in the documentary that he had seen this thing down in Puerto Rico that the teams that it was, you know, it was territorial. It was we were talking early about the pride that the fans and the players used to have in representing their city and franchise. You know, down in Puerto Rico, it, it's like that. It's 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 war. I mean, you're representing your town, your tribe. Just crazy shit. I guess there's another uh, uh, piece out, like a book out that's about Phil, where it talks about Phil taking acid and all kinds of crazy shit. Like, I'm going to have to really indulge into the world of Phil Jackson at one of these points. Uh, like you mentioned there, they do talk about Phil as a player. Of course, uh, the, the last time that Big Ray Hernandez, New York Knicks were basically relevant um, all the way back in the 60s. And then they get into Phil when he takes over as coach in 1990. And all the way through the run to the bad boy Pistons in the 1990 Eastern Conference Finals, which, Rick, I one thing I don't think that they talked nearly enough about was Scotty's migraine game, the headache game, uh, because the Bulls should have won in 1990. If Scotty Pippen is healthy, ready to go, I think the Bulls win in 1990 as well. But Scotty was basically like a tenth of the Scotty Pippen that we actually know in that game because he was trying to play with a migraine. Yeah, and, you know, they're kind of in it. Jordan's even like, you know, what do you want me to do here? Guy's got a migraine. And he knows, you know, even outside of all the problems with that, when it comes to game time, he can count on Scotty. So I don't think that was a doubt in his mind. And he doesn't really have anything there. He's like, what the fuck do you want me to do, man? Get- yeah, because without Scotty, it, it basically becomes the the Pistons versus Michael Jordan. Every time he crosses half court, there's three guys on Jordan. They just beat the ever loving shit out of him. He didn't stand a chance. Absolutely. Do you think the Do you think the Bulls would have won that series? Likely so. But I mean, but you know, again, you know, a butterfly effect. I mean, if they win there, does that change the course of the rest of the? Does the early success affect that latest late success? Yeah, that, that's a valid point. Uh, Another one of the unsung heroes throughout episode four is a gentleman by the name of Tex Winter. Uh, Tex Winter, not necessarily the innovator of the triangle, but he's certainly the one that made it famous. I didn't hear him even mention Sam Barry, who is actually the gentleman that came up with the triangle offense. Barry 
Very brief. Very briefly. Uh, he was the USC head coach back in the day. Uh, he was the USC head coach 1929 to 1941, and then they brought him back in 1945 through 1950. So the triangle offense has literally been around for, you know, 90 years, even though Phil Jackson gets so much of the credit for the popularization of it. Uh, I also found out in doing the research for the show, not only was Sam Barry the head basketball coach at USC, he was also an assistant football coach and an assistant baseball coach. I mean, my, my, how the times have changed, right? Absolutely. I mean, you're all around. I mean, if you know how to motivate, you know how to get in the mind of especially a young student athlete, you're going to use that across the board. But, of course, a young Tex Winter at the time served as an assistant for Sam Barry, and he brought the triangle to Phil Jackson. Uh, Tex Winter, he probably the most underrated assistant coach of all time because not only was he with the Bulls for all these championships, he also went with Phil to Los Angeles and was an assistant coach for the Lakers and the original three-peat. Uh, Tex Winter and Michael Jordan didn't seem to get along very well. At least not at the beginning. Tex Winter kept trying to beat into Jordan's head. There's no I in team. And Michael would say, no, but there's an I in win. Didn't want Bill Cartwright having the ball with five seconds left to go. Uh, the triangle changed everything. And I, I mean everything. The effect on Michael Jordan. I, Phil told him straight up, your stats are going to drop. But we're going to win more games. And that was certainly an adjustment period for Michael and the Bulls at that time. Well, I think, you know, what you see from Michael then as, as well, though, is it was it was my, a mighty hard pill to swallow. He's losing a coach where everything is about you. And, and how dare that anyone suggest that this that another philosophy, another style is going to work than running everything here through Michael Jordan. But the triangle wasn't changing that. This was about highlighting Jordan in those there's prime opportunities more. And that's exactly what it did by spreading that floor and keeping teams honest with him. And I think once Jordan realized that, and maybe he wasn't completely bought in, but the outward perception was he was, he was ready to give this thing a shot. He came right out and even said it, you know what I've had my, like as Collins, you know, would put on his resume and Jordan said, I've had the scoring title. I've been the MVP in this field. I've won a dunk contest. I'm no longer worried about those things. Now it's about championships. That's what I came here. That's what I told you from day one. Now we're fully committed to this thing. Let's go get them. And that's when you see, you know, truly the coming of age of this Bulls team. And one thing that did I that I hope people and it really stood out to me, and I hope that others watching took home from this thing was a very simple point. When you're talking about Phil's rise to the top here, and it was Krause that put it over. He said, "I'm paying attention." That at every opportunity, Phil Jackson is sitting there, picking the mind and learning every experience from the greatest, brilliant mind going inside of basketball. 233 plays. By my count, the triangle offense gives a team 233 different plays. Um, and you get a very, very brief explanation of the triangle and how it works. The seven different sets inside of the seven different sets. Each set has 33 different plays that you can run for the three varied positions. Basically 11 plays per position, depending on how you want to run this. I was, thing. Just, I was in like a seizure just watching all the different. <laughs> yeah. Can we get a 10 part series of Phil, like just explaining the fucking no, triangle? I don't know. To understand this triangle, I feel like it's like a four-year program at an Ivy League school. We we're talking about Princeton. Like, you would have to go. <laughs> yeah, and, and and that was one of the things I always heard Kobe talk about was in order to play and to thrive inside of the triangle offense, you need a bunch of very, very high IQ basketball players because there's just so much to take into consideration. But, my God, I'd like – even as somebody who kind of understands the triangle, at least like the theory of the triangle, I was just blown away for those two minutes that Phil Jackson's explaining the triangle and you're seeing the diagrams. And I'm like, 
Can I get like 20 hours of just Phil explaining to me the freaking triangle? There's got to be a book about this, right? Dude, I, I think my basketball career got shut because I, I got shut down just simply because I couldn't even get it began to, to grasp the concept of the motion offense. I can't imagine just dropping the triangle on somebody. 233 different plays. And when you look at the modern NBA, iso ball. Like, could you imagine James Harden in the triangle? Russell Westbrook in the triangle? Like, there's no freaking chance. The one that amazes me is Shaq, that Shaq grasped that. Of course, you know, when you're seven foot four and 350 pounds, you can pretty much do whatever the fuck it is that you want to do. But just absolutely masterful stuff from Phil oh, Jackson. What are you talking about, man? Shaq, he's smart enough today to get insured by the general. I think back then he was okay with grasping the triangle. Well played. Well played. We also see goodbye skinny Jordan. Michael hits the weight room after getting the shit kicked out of him by the Pistons. He only put on about 15 pounds, which it, it sure looked like he put on a hell of a lot more mass than that to me. Uh, a lot more of it muscle than uh, fat. That's for sure. Not that Michael had a whole lot of fat on him to begin with. Um, but th this was like the first time that Michael actually started weight training through all those years with Doug Collins. All the years with Dean Smith and Roy Williams at Carolina, he just he never got into weight training. Imagine how much better he would have been in 1986 if he would have had, you know, 2020 weight training and diet discipline and he wasn't sitting around smoking cigars and drinking Hennessy. I mean, my God. Well, you, you really you look at the physiques back then, you know, across the board, it was our athletes weren't built that way. There wasn't the emphasis that we would get through, you know, the later 90s and through the early 2000s, especially today. I mean, you go look at hell. I mean, just your high school athletes, uh, you know, compared to what we look like back then. Well, and, I mean, that was just kind of the development of weight training. And I wonder how much of that influences when they go publicly with Michael Jordan. Now, the Bulls are doing this here. Then it starts, you know, picking up a little, you know, steam publicly and you see more people gravitating towards that you know that off-season off-court training i think even but, more so than jordan look at rodman my god rodman was a freaking skinny pole when he played for the detroit pistons and when you fast forward to that 97 98 season rodman's built like a brick freaking shithouse well you know even with that detroit team it wasn't like Lambeer, I mean, no, we're not going to go out there and he's not Mr. Olympian anyway. He was just a mean SOB, man. Yeah, he was a mean motherfucker. <laughs> I, can't, I, can't, I can't begin to explain to people that weren't alive at that time how mean that bad boy Pistons team was. Just crazy. I said last week, the guy's defined by his video game. It's robots with guns yeah. on a basketball court. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, and then we get into Showtime. And, and this was really the end of showtime. Um, it, that Lakers team was ridiculous, and they just could not reclaim their once great prominence. They, they, they talk about the Bulls versus the Lakers in 91, but what they kind of failed to mention is, you know, 89, Lakers were in the finals. 90, Lakers were in the finals. 91, Lakers in the finals. It, it was that era they just could not – they couldn't even beat the bad boy Pistons. I mean, the bad boy Pistons beat up the freaking Lakers because the Lakers were an older and aging team. Like they were 80% of Showtime and 80% of Showtime just was not enough to get over that Eastern Conference. Yeah, you're talking about, I mean, one of the greatest dynasties that the NBA had ever seen and they helped evolutionize the game and all that. But ultimately you're catching Showtime on the back end of this thing. I think really what, and you got to feel the NBA was a little disappointed probably in how this thing played out. They would have loved this, you know, to push this game to the series limit to get that passing of the torch, not just between the Lakers and the Bulls, but especially between Magic and Michael. But really, when we're talking about that obstacle, that mountain that you have to overcome, it was in the East, not in the finals. It was almost that foregone co you know, conclusion. It, very similar to uh, when Boston finally got the Yankees. Mm-hmm. And they go on to play the the Rockies. It was Rockies or Cardinals. I can't even recall which time it was on that, but it was okay. We just oh, the roller coaster's over. Now we're pulling into the bay and just getting everybody off the ride. They're the champs. Yep. And it just it's the, the casualty of the NL that's in the way. And that's really how this was. But at least you know going in, the Lakers are on the downside. But I'm sure, man, 
if they could have gotten a little bit more out of that, but you go out there and the Bulls at this point, they had arrived. They had come full circle. They had matured and they gave it the horns. And it wasn't too much longer after that, that Magic Johnson was out of the league. So this was really the big showdown between MJ and Magic. Unfortunately, the Lakers just didn't have nearly enough to, to put up with the Chicago Bulls and their young firepower, especially with guys like John Paxton. John Paxton, so understated when it comes to those early 90s Bull teams. He was basically the sharpshooter. He was the Steve Kerr before Steve Kerr was a thing. And Paxton, incredible. He was incredible, especially once Michael learned that if I just pass the ball to Paxton, I'm going to drive into the lane. I'm going to attract three guys. Paxton is going to be standing wide open for three. Paxton was like that first dagger shooter that I remember inside of the NBA. Just another, just, I mean, perfect piece of the puzzle here. And Paxton was along for the ride, you know, going back to episode one, we got that little glimpse that he was there for Jordan through and through. And now you see it coming full circle. The other big thing that was inside of this episode and what we'll close up on this week, Phil's looming departure. And, Rick, it's something that I, I think I thought about at the time, but I, I kind of had forgotten about it. Michael, by this point, was so pissed off at the media. And it wasn't just Michael. It was also Scotty. It was also Rodman. It was also Phil. They had become so callous because everywhere they would go, they were kept asking the same half a dozen questions, kept giving the same half a dozen answers. And by about, you know, the 30th road game, they had just had it. They had just had it. And, and they were just over it. Uh, and absolutely. I mean, when, you got to hit it. I mean, the, the press is looking for something. They want to drum up that interest. You're, you're trying to tell that story. Uh, and, you know, I think there was, I can't remember the, uh, the lady's name in this, but even, you know, they showed us on the documentary, they show the frustration. She's even kind of, when, when can we just all as a fan base, enjoy this, this last dance, this final ride that we have together. Now, my question, Michael wanted to play for Phil. He wanted to play for Phil awful bad. And even to the point where Jerry Krause was making comments, we would love to have Michael back. But if Michael is going to have to play for somebody else, it's not going to be Phil because Jerry Krause had told Phil, I don't care if you go 82 and 0 and win the championship, you're gone next season. So Michael retires. Phil goes to LA. Michael comes back as a Washington wizard. Could you imagine if Michael Jordan would have went and played on those Lakers teams? If you could have had Michael and Kobe and Shaq all on the no. same team because Michael uh, just wanted to play for Phil. Holy again. shit. Yeah, I think there's a lot more to be said about that situation in Chicago. And it was just, you know, at all costs, we are the brotherhood on the floor. Anything we can do to stick it to Kraus up there in the office and everybody involved there. But with that butterfly effect I'm talking about, Jordan goes there. Maybe the Shaq deal never gets done. Maybe they don't feel a need for a Kobe Bryant. You never know how, how that trickles out and how that works out. I mean, I, I would have been fine with Michael retiring, taking a couple years off. You know, just Was that come hunger? Join, come join the Lakers in like 2001, you know, when we already got Shaq. We already got Kobe. Things are starting to fall apart a little bit. We need the glue to hold it all together. Could have been what kind of What kind of fucking loser runs to L.A.? <sighs> Could have won at least, you know, another three championships or so. So that's going to wrap things up for this week's edition of Running with the Bulls. Huckleberry, next week, episodes five and six. Have you watched the trailer yet? Do you know what's coming in episodes five and six? I have. And believe me, man, I'm looking forward to these. And what I want more from this thing, we've, we've got the four corners in place. we got the, the ring post set up. Now let's start building the rest of this thing. I, I want to know about the rest of the, the pieces to this puzzle that were oh so important. The, you know, the Paxons, the, the Kerrs, the Cartwrights, the Horace Grants. I can't wait for the Bill the, Wennington episode. Yes, I, I want all of those. But I, then I want to step outside. I want to take a, I want to step outside of Chicago, the Windy City. And I want the perspectives from all of the Hall of Famers that were denied championship opportunities. Well, and I'm ultimately looking forward to this thing with the Sonics. You remember when we covered um, the, the Chris Benoit episodes of Dark Side of the Ring? 
And we talked about how episode one was, you know, kind of like the humanization of, of, of Chris Benoit. Episode two is going to take a very, very dark turn. Episodes five and six, from what I've heard, things are about to take a very dark turn. And you're about to find out how what kind of douchebag Michael Jordan was come 1992. Gloves off. So we will talk to you right back here next week. Hackerhameen.podbean.com, Hitting the Marks Podcast Network, hittingthemarks.com. You can keep up with me across all social media at NotJargo. Keep up with him at The Real RBV. Rick, anything that you want to plug before we get on out of here today? A uh, hot new episode of Hot Tag WrestleCast just. Just dropped this afternoon. You want to be sure to check that out over at hackerhameen.podbean.com. Had a, a very, very interesting conversation with a uh, local Ohio promoter from War Wrestling, Mr. Thomas Williams. Uh, we're talking about how important it is for indie wrestling to be involved with their community. And over the course of War Wrestling's run that they have given back over $400,000 to the little town of Lima, Ohio. And incredible, incredible story there with Mr. Uh, with, with Big Tom. We'll talk to you next week, but for now, we're off like a prom dress. Or, in Rodman's case, a wedding dress. See ya! His or hers. Yes. Hear my words, infidels. I've greenlit my latest cell, and it's the War on Morons podcast. That's right, the world's full of morons, but I've sent Jay and Anissa to declare war on them. From the stupid criminals to those Florida man stories you love, and the other idiots of Hollywood and D.C., these new Hameen soldiers speak the truth, the stupidity in a fun and comical manner. Each week, these two will be bringing on friends and all these crazy characters to give you the punk rock comedy news show you didn't even know that you needed, but you have it now that you're under quarantine you will listen infidels and that's right there's a bit of uncertainty every week from the live hotline so you never know who's going to call into the show <laughs> so plant your flag in the sand grab your friends and suit up because the war on morons has commenced infidels visit them now and subscribe at the war on morons.podbean.com <laughs>